Let's uh, begin by praying, shall we? Take a few quiet moments. Many of us have had long days and maybe we're feeling a little tired. We praise God for the privilege of prayer where we can just be still and in our hearts we can commune and talk with God. And Father, we ask for strength. Amidst our tiredness, please renew our bodies, our spirits. Thank you for making it possible that we are here. And so while we are here, we pray that the time we spend together may be constructive, may be edifying. So we pray for your help. As we look into this portion of your word in Leviticus, we ask that you will send your Holy Spirit to be our true teacher, our true guide. And we seek always the glory of Jesus, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, the book called Leviticus. You've got a set of notes, uh, which is this week's notes. If the Lord tarries, uh, I expect, uh, I've been invited to be with you for three Thursdays, so this is uh, first Thursday. So if the Lord tarries, I'll take you, uh, I'll be with you for two more Thursdays. Before I begin, since I have this slide up there, uh, I, I hope you, I bring you greetings from your sister churches in the Trinity Annual Conference. So I do this wherever I go, so some of you should already be prepared for this. Uh, we want to be on track together. In other words, we try and help one another. By the way, are there any of you from, non, not from Amokyo and you're, you've, somehow you heard about tonight and you're here? No? Everyone from Amokyo. So Anthony, you forgot to tell your sister churches that you are running this course, right? Ah, you forgot. So what I've been trying to do amongst all our 21 churches is let's share information with one another and invite, you know, because you've got different things going on. We're all one family uh, and, and you can come along. So for instance, this talk on Leviticus, I have given at Wesley Methodist Church before and I know that some of, of you have been part of that. Uh, 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 your WSCS ladies were at a, at a talk that was organized uh, at Wesley. Uh, on Leviticus. So, but that's the sort of thing where we share with one another. But, but I'm, I get distracted. I wanted to point out, uh, give out a prize to someone, a present. If they can tell us, you see that star? Uh, sorry, I'm pointing there because that's the screen. <laughs> that's the screen I'm looking at, right? But that star uh, symbolizes, it's a, a kind of a, a sort of a symbol that we've developed to try and remind us of what we want to do on track together. It's uh, a star which reminds us we're meant to shine out God's, the light of God's love in this world of darkness. But it's, it's designed by using an English alphabet five times. right? The English alphabet W, obviously. And those five W's are meant to remind us of five things that we want to help each other as a track family to promote. So if you would like to take home this nice Salangor pewter plated cross... Volunteer, who can name the five W's? <laughs> can anyone name what are the five W's? Anybody want to try? i give you the mic. Yeah, Thomas wants to try? You don't think you should, is it? Oh, because it's too easy for you. That's good. Very good, Thomas. Anyone want to try? Or I'm going to put your new pastor on the spot. See whether he... <laughs> Even though it's his first day at work. <laughs> but, uh, so... Uh, do your new pastor a favor. Help him out. Someone else answer. Anyone? I see. 
You get there, you're going online quickly, is it? To have a quick... <laughs> okay, we, we shouldn't waste any more time. Does anyone... Your last one you're still working on, okay. Okay, we'll let your, your Tommy, your PPRC chairs. We'll let your PPRC chair uh, tell us what the five W's are. Welcome, worship, word, witness, wonder. Very good, well done. Yeah, you can carry this cross with you. <laughs> so as a family of 21 churches, we want to help each other as much as possible, promote God's word through worship, God's welcome and love, witness and, and wonder. And tonight we gather around God's Word and we're looking at the book of Leviticus. It's a three-session introduction. Tonight I hope to give you a summary. So if you can't make the next two Thursdays, you could only make one Thursday and tonight was the one you made, I think this is the best one you've taken because you get a summary of the whole book. Uh, so I give you a summary of Leviticus tonight. And then uh, it's the Lord Tarry's. Next week I'll look at two chapters in particular, chapter 11, which has to do with a lot of laws dealing with what, what is clean and what is unclean and try and unpack that a little. As well as the, in Leviticus 17, which deals with, uh, uh, has a lot to do with blood. You shall not eat blood. And what, what do we make? How do we make sense of, of, of that particular injunction? And then uh, the third session, Leviticus 19, uh, a lot, uh, take you through that chapter and Chapter 23, which talks about the three annual festivals uh, that were commanded for the ancient Israelites. Okay, so that's the plan. If the Lord tarries over these next three weeks, that's, that's my outline. But tonight, a summary. The book called Leviticus. God's invitation, my pastoral summary of it is the book is an invitation to commune continually with God. And I hope by the end of this evening, it will be clear to you why I've put that as a sort of a very simple summary of the whole book. But first, in case some of you are wondering, this is a very funny word, Leviticus. Uh, you know, why is, what does it mean? Well, it's derived, it's, it's Latin, derived from Levi. Some of you will know Levi, the tribe of Levi. So Leviticus, the name Leviticus uh, is derived from the Levites. The Levites, the tribe, come from the tribe of Levi. So that's why we get this strange title, Leviticus. It's not the title... It's not in the Hebrew Bible. In other words, the Hebrew Bible, this is not the title. Uh, this is the title that, you know, the, the, some, some uh, in the Roman times where they decided to call the book Leviticus because of, of, of Latin. Uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible, they, they, the, the way they titled the book was just the first three words of the book, which happened to be, and he called. <laughs> so, you know, Hebrew just does it like that. So Genesis is, the title of the book Genesis in the Hebrew Bible is In the Beginning. You know, uh, that sort of thing. And for Leviticus, it's the first three words of, of Leviticus, which was, and he called. Uh, but we Westerners, well, I, I say we, but I mean Leviticus comes uh, from the Western church, the title. Uh, that's how we, we get it. So not really important, but that's what it has. It has to do with the Levites. Uh, and Moses and Aaron were descended from Levi, so they're from the tribe of the Levites. And the tribe of Levi was appointed to look after the temple or the tabernacle. Okay, so all that's there in Numbers 17 and 18, and I won't take you through that. Just explaining to you who are the Levites. They were specifically chosen, uh, set aside to look after the tabernacle and the temple. Okay? So this is the book we're studying. So straight away some of you may get worried. So if it's a book called Leviticus, it has to do with Levites. Chances are it's got a lot to do with what the priests are are doing in a temple. 
If that's your guess, the answer is you are right, absolutely right. It has a lot to do with the priesthood. Okay, so our question though is, uh, what might we be able to learn from? I'm not a priest. I'm not a pastor. Is there anything for me? So hopefully you will hear uh, something for yourself as well. Uh, even though the book was primarily a, a manual, if you like, for the Levites and how they should serve in the temple. In this short summary, I obviously can't take you through all 27 chapters. So as I've already given you in your outline, I'm just going to be giving you a summary tonight and over the next two Thursdays, I'm picking two different chapters each of the two Thursdays. So I won't be taking you through 27 chapters in any kind of detail. Tonight will be the summary of all 27 chapters, but in terms of pondering any chapter in, in length, I obviously can't do, it, do that with you. So some of you may want to read more. Maybe some of your small groups, when, when you're not on a church-wide uh, study and there's some free weeks you may want to study Leviticus, I've given you some reading suggestions in the, in the notes. Uh, if you're only going to buy one, if you can only afford to buy one, this would be the one that I recommend. The one by Derek Tidbull, The Message of Leviticus. He's actually written two commentaries on Leviticus. I think this one, the, his 2005 IVP version, is probably the, 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 the most accessible, most helpful uh, for church small groups. Okay, so let me get into the book. I, Pastor Antti told me we... Normally when you have these evening sessions, and I fully agree and understand, we try and end by 9.30, right? Do we take a break between 8 and 9.30? Huh? No. Oh, up to me. Do we normally take a break? Yeah. Huh? She, you can. Oh, we'll see how it goes, all right? <laughs> a, a summary of the key theme, it's... There are seven verses and I've listed them for you in your outline. Uh, the key theme is quite clearly that of holiness. You shall be holy for I am holy. That, for I am the Lord who makes you holy. So those two sentences or variations, are, uh, that, that statement, uh, you shall be holy for I am holy. I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's a key theme and I've listed the verses there. Obviously if someone repeats a certain thing again and again, you know it's a major theme. Alright, so quite clearly, holiness is a major theme. But we should, if we're trying to understand the book, ask the question, what is holiness? Holiness may mean different things to different people. Um, words mean different things to different people, depending on how you use it, right? Uh, what does love mean? We, we need to ask, well, the person using it, how is he using it? How is he using the word? So, for instance, if, I, if you say, I love my wife. And someone says, I love my dog. What does love mean? And the way a person lo loves a dog and the way a person loves his wife, is it exactly the same? Is it the same type of love? There may be overlap, but I love ice cream. <laughs> you know, I love durian. It, it may be the same word love, but we're trying to find out how is the word love being used by the particular person in that particular context. So what does holiness mean? For some people, holiness might mean, I don't know, cannot do this, cannot do that. For someone else, holiness might have a different idea. You probably, when you think of the word holiness, you may, you may have a certain idea. Some people, I think when they think of the word holiness, they, they think of it as a negative thing. Oh, holy means war, cannot do so many things, cannot enjoy life. But 
So what does the book of Leviticus think holiness means? Leviticus emphasizes holiness quite clearly. You shall be holy, for I the Lord am holy. But we need to ask the book, what do you mean by holy? And that's the way I'm going to try and summarize this book. Trying to answer the question, what is holiness in the book of Leviticus? Okay, So that's how my summary is working. I've given you, I think, in your notes also this breakdown of the 27 chapters. You'll see in chapters 1 to 7, we get instructions on a lot of different sacrifices. Chapters 8 to 10, focus on Aaron, who was uh, the, the main priest. Aaron and his family of priests. Aaron was the brother of Moses and they're from the tribe of Levi. So Aaron and his family of priests, specific instructions given to them in chapters 8 to 10. Then chapters 11 to 15, a whole list of laws or principles that deal with life or holiness. Chapter 16, one long chapter describing one day in the calendar, which uh, uh, the Jews call today the Day of Atonement. And then chapters 17 to 27 look a bit more, look similar to chapters 11 to 15, and we get a lot more laws again on holiness, uh, uh, principles for living. So that's a very basic content of the book. So since the book looks like this, I ask myself the question, since Leviticus clearly is emphasizing holiness, the need to be holy, and this is the content of the whole book, how does this content tell us what holiness means? What holiness looks like? And so I'm going to summarize this book in terms of the importance of sacrifices, instructions to the priests, Think a bit about the principles and atonement. I'll spend a bit more time on sacrifices, chapters 1 to 7, uh, and I'll go a bit more quickly through the rest, because at least in the next two Thursdays, I'll be speaking from chapter 11 and chapter 17 uh, and chapter 23, so you'll get a bit more of that second half. Okay, But for tonight, I'm going to take you through the whole book, but spend a bit more time on this first section. So don't worry uh, if the first section seems to be taking so long and you're worried 9.30 is already coming along the way. The second bit will go along more quickly, right? But so let's look at uh, this, uh, this content and ask ourselves the question, what does holiness look like in the book of Leviticus? Okay, so the shape of holiness in the book of Leviticus is governed by the sacrifices, chapters 1 to 7, the priesthood, chapters 8 to 10, the principles for living, chapters 11 to 15, and chapters 17 to 27, and then chapter 16, which has to do with atonement, the day of atonement. First, sacrifices. So let me give you a summary of the sacrifices. We have in chapters 1 to 7 instructions given to everybody, not just the priests. Firstly, the instructions to everyone in chapter 1 on whole offerings, as uh, I think NIV, I forget now, N, uh, NIV either says burnt offerings or whole offerings, so these are different ways English translators uh, uh, choose. We have grain offerings in chapter 2, peace offerings in chapter 3, sin and then guilt offerings covers chapter 4, 5 uh, and the start of 6. And then chapter, the rest of chapter 6 and chapter 7, if you read it, the instructions are, instructions are now given to the priests on each of these four or five types of sacrifices. So it's, it seems repetish, uh, repeated, but actually now giving instructions to the priests on how to handle 
burnt offerings or whole offerings, how to deal with grain offerings, what to do with peace offerings, what to do with sin and guilt offerings. Instructions to the priest on how to manage these when the people bring these sort of offerings. So that's the way the book, uh, those chapters 1 to 7 uh, uh, look like. So let me make some general pastoral reflections on these laws or instructions concerning sacrifices. Firstly, if you look at the instructions on all these sacrifices, active participation of every worshipper is assumed or commanded. So for instance, if you look at chapter uh, 1 verse 3, if the offering is a burnt offering, you, speaking to the worshipper, you must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Verse 4, you are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, the animal. 5, verse 5, you are, you are to slaughter the young bull. This is you, not the priest. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. And then Aaron's sons, who are the priests, they shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar. So you see, the worshipper is involved in this offering of the sacrifice. They present it, they lay the hand on the head, they slaughter it. Then it's more, you are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. So there was a, quite a lot of active involvement required of the worshipper. So that's one principle I think that we could notice as we look at the way the sacrifices are taught in the book. You are to wash the internal organs. So my reaction, of course, is having never slaughtered an animal or done anything like that is ugh. But that seems to be the way it was expected back then. Okay, Active participation. Um, so Leviticus chapter 1 uh, speaks about this uh, active participation of all people. And so perhaps if we are going to reflect on how we might possibly learn from the book of Leviticus, we might ask ourselves, all right, thank goodness, I say thank goodness, we no longer have to bring animals and slaughter them for Pastor Anthony to do something with them. But, you know, praise God for that. But the principle that seems to lie behind the way people worshipped or were told to worship had involved active participation. So we ought to ask ourselves, how can we promote more active involvement in our worship service. It's not just the priest or the pastor up there doing everything, not just a few people, but try and involve worshippers. So m most of our worshipers, we, uh, worship services, we try to do things like that. We, we sort of get people to stand up at certain times together or even come forward maybe. I know some churches I've gone to, the offering, they don't just sit back there and receive the bag. You know, they, they sing a hymn and during that hymn, those who would like to present their offering come forward and there are like four bags, four boxes where the offerings are received. So they're singing and they come forward and I suppose it symbolizes this actively going forward to offer something to the Lord. Uh, some churches might want to try that. Uh, so even prayer, prayer time, rather than just, you might think, how can we promote more active involvement of people uh, in prayer? And you, you could think uh, along those lines. And, we, and you know, as we just pray and think about it, so we may come up with some good ideas that are culturally appropriate. We don't want to introduce something that we think will might will make people squirm or whatever, but we might be able to come up with culturally appropriate things that are meaningful and you explain to people why we are doing it and it, it, it gets them involved. Uh, I was at another Methodist church. During the prayer time, the pastor sort of said, 
Because they had a they had an altar rail. They said we're, we're all going into a time of prayer now. But if any of you have a particular thing that you are thanking the Lord, a specific thing that you know maybe in the last week or two that you are thankful for and you want to praise the Lord for, uh, and you want to come forward and kneel at the altar during our time of, of fi- this five minute time of of prayer and quietness, feel free to just come forward. It, it's not as if the pastor then was going to counsel or ask, "Hey, what was it?" It's just you're here in the presence of the Lord. The altar rails are available. Feel free to come forward, kneel before the Lord, offer your prayer of thanksgiving. You know, so different things like that. We, we, we try and, I think that's good to try and promote some kind of active involvement of all worshippers. Okay, what else about sacrifices worth thinking about? I've, as we think about the different types of sacrifices that were commanded, whole offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin and guilt offerings, I think I've described them as relationship rituals for all occasions. Let me try and unpack that for you. First, whole offerings, or in some translations, burnt offerings. What was characteristic of these offerings? They were offered continuously. All night, all day. Leviticus chapter 6 verse 9, I read, These are the regulations for the burnt offering. The burnt offering is to remain on the altar hearth throughout the night until morning and the fire must be kept burning on the altar. So somehow, I, we don't know the details because this was so long ago, but somehow the whole offerings or the burnt offerings were meant to be bur- kept burning all night until the morning. Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 6 verses 12 to 13 talks about the fire burning continuously. And so I've put the phrase there, offered continuously, whole offerings. Uh, we're not doing the book of Numbers or Exodus, but if we did turn to Exodus chapter 29 and Numbers chapter 28, there also talks briefly about these whole or burnt offerings. And there it seems to, to say the burnt offering should be received twice daily, once in the morning and once in the evening. So one might see this as how does, how did, how does one reconcile the two? Uh, but Leviticus clearly uses the sense of, you know, all day, all night, all night, all day, it's burning. So maybe it was that during the morning and the evening, the priests received the offerings from the people. And then maybe the priest somehow, sort of, throughout the day, you know, you don't burn all of them at one go. But, but, so anyway, we, we can differ on that, we can make our guesses on that. But I think quite clearly the whole offerings were meant in some ways to be regularly Daily, at least twice daily, they're being offered to the Lord. Leviticus suggests continuously, all night, all day. And so what might we learn from the whole offering? Oh, sorry, one more point about the whole offering. It was offered completely to the Lord. Leviticus 1.9 says, You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. When you when we read the other offerings, peace offerings, uh, uh, cereal offerings, sin and guilt offerings, you will see there the instruction is not the whole animal is burnt. Part of it is burnt. Other parts the priest can eat. In certain other offerings, the worshipper himself shares it with, with the priest and others. It's But the whole offering is, is the only one that is explicitly said all of it is burnt and given to the Lord. Okay, so that's one of the characteristics of this whole or the burnt offering. It was offered completely, not partially. Uh, and so perhaps that should speak to us then of our 
the offering of our whole lives in dedication to the Lord. Okay? And continuously, day and night, let's offer ourselves to the Lord. Uh, and some people have that, that good habit, I think, of beginning the day, ending the day by rededicating their lives to the Lord. Okay, so I think that's what we could learn from the whole offering. It reminds us to daily, continuously dedicate our whole life to the Lord. So this might be a good time to have a break and sing this song, which some of you might know, Lord, I offer my life to you. Because we're tired, so let's stand up and we sing this together. Anthony, help me move it. Move the PowerPoint. You can sing Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I do, use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you, as a pleasing sacrifice. Lord, I offer you. So Leviticus and the whole offerings remind us to offer our whole lives to the Lord regularly, day and night. So total dedication, I think it speaks to us of total dedication to the Lord. The grain offerings, chapter 2. The Hebrew word that is used here to describe what we translate as, different translations use either grain offerings or or cereal offerings, the, the root meaning of the word seems to be that of a gift or a tribute. So elsewhere in the Bible, for instance, that same Hebrew word uh, is used and translated as a gift. Genesis 32 verse 14, Jacob spent the night there and from what he had with him, he selected a, a gift. That's the word that is used here in Leviticus chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 25, year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver, gold, robes, robes. So it's some kind of tribute or gift. Again, the same word being used in Leviticus 2. So from the use of the particular word, one might presumably think that the gift offering is meant to symbolize a gift of some sort which you offer to the Lord out of gratitude, maybe out of respect and honor, appreciation. So you just want to say thank you to the Lord. And so you, you bring this a gift offering. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this is one of the offerings. Unlike the whole offering, the, you, you present this grain offering and it can, it can be eaten by the priests. Part 
you know, it doesn't all have to be burnt up, as it were, to the Lord. You, you bring it in thanksgiving and it gets shared, shared with the priests. Right? So it's partly eaten by the priests. I'll show you the verse there, Leviticus 2, verse 3. In red, verse 3, the rest of the grain offering belongs to Aaron and his sons. These are very different from the way the whole offerings are described. With All of it was burnt to the Lord. Okay? So, I think the grain offering uh, signifies an offering or a sacrifice which we make in order to show gratitude and respect, appreciation and honour. So grain offerings help us, give us an opportunity in a concrete way to express our appreciation and thanksgiving uh, to the Lord. Peace offerings, chapter 3. What might they have been? What might they have uh, taught the the Israelites? What is a peace offering? Uh, the, the 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 phrase in Hebrew is based on the word shalom, and that's why our English translations translate it as a peace offering. I think in English idiom, if you you hear someone use the phrase, "Oh, I bring this as a peace offering." I suspect the way we use it is I'm trying to say sorry or, you know, we have done something. So it's more like a, trying to, to mend a relationship. So that perhaps is correct. Uh, and I suppose from the word peace, that may make sense. Okay, so in English idiom, a peace offering helps smooth over some unhappiness between parties. So perhaps then peace offerings, unlike sin offerings, which we'll be looking at briefly later, maybe... Sin offering quite clearly, when you make a sin offering, you're saying sorry for a particular sin you have committed. Maybe peace offering is, you know, uh, you're showing your desire for peace. Maybe there's no admission that I've, I've done a sin or whatever, but there's some, uh, there seems to be something that, a, a, a gap or a distance that I, I'm trying to bridge. So we, we show, it shows our desire for peace or fellowship with God and neighbor over the, a particular matter. We leave we agree to leave differences aside and we present this peace offering as a way of saying, let's continue as friends. Let's be friends. Let's continue to con uh, be in peace with one another. This idea of what lies behind the peace offering finds some support from the story in 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 15, where peace offerings were offered in the context where some people didn't, were not happy with God's choice of Saul as king. And they were grumbling, ah, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want this guy as king. But the majority accepted uh, God's choice through Samuel of King Saul. And Saul said, we offer peace offerings. So in that context, it does seem to uh, fit in with that sort of line. So based on the, the use of the, on the name or the word peace offering, one might say that uh, the peace offerings are sacrifice of peace. Literally, it's a sacrifice of many pieces. It's meant, perhaps it expresses the worshippers' desire for peace. But if we look at Leviticus 7, based on the instructions that are given to the priests on how to receive the peace offerings, there, other themes come out, not, that, not so much that of trying to do reconciliation work. There is the theme of thanksgiving, the meat of their peace offering of thanksgiving. Then there also seems to be an indication that this peace offering is the result of a vow, 
So maybe it's like you, you've made a vow or promise to the Lord and maybe the Lord has answered your prayer and so you bring this peace offering in because you know you made a vow or promise to do so. Or maybe it's your way of making a vow to the Lord. Lord, I bring you this offering as my promise that I'm going to be doing something. But we have the, the, the phrase there in Leviticus 7 about a vow or a free will offering. Maybe, so in some ways a peace offering was a free will offering. So you can tell we're not exactly sure. It's not so strict what a peace offering was and, and what, what, what we're doing here because you know this is over 3,000 years old, these sort of instructions. Uh, we're, trying to try, we're trying to understand what probably was behind each of these different sacrifices. Uh, and so I guess the peace offering is quite broad. It expresses a desire for peace, for shalom. It, maybe it also is an offering of thanksgiving for some shalom that has been experienced. Maybe some, you know, some helpful resolution took place at, at the office or whatever, and you, you come with an uh, offering of thanksgiving. A vow fulfilled. Uh, Anthony will know this because he knows Hebrew. Shalom can also have this sense, not just of the word peace, but of completeness. Uh, and so maybe a vow that is shalomed or fulfilled, maybe that's why it came to be associated with the term peace offering. Or maybe it's just a free will offering for no reason. So if any of these things there, you want to bring a peace offering, you would call it a peace offering, a free will offering for no specific reason. Maybe thanksgiving was for a specific reason. Sometimes we just give things out of free will, no specific reason. And you know, we have some jokes about that, right? The husband comes back, brings his wife, bunch of flowers and the wife says it's not my birthday it's not our anniversary so what have you done wrong now <laughs> there's the idea where you know if you're giving me something there must be a reason but in truth in good loving relationships you don't really need a reason to bless and to give someone something it's just a free will offering Okay, so relationship rituals for all occasions. The whole offerings or burnt offerings, I think, speak of our continuous and total dedication to the Lord day and night, night and day. Grain offerings speak of expressing appreciation and respect and honor. Then you have peace offerings which have to do with shalom and we've, as I've just explained in, in Leviticus, they're quite broad. They cover various things, vows, free will offerings, thanksgiving. And then chapters 4 and 5 deal with sin and guilt offerings. Uh, there are two different types of offerings, but I've decided to put them together because as we study chapters 4 and 5, they seem to overlap. So it's, it's not very clear to, to us. We, different people have different guesses, but they seem very closely related. Offerings for sin or for guilt. So I treat them together. Uh, there's... These are there are sin there are offerings that you make due to unintentional sin. So that phrase is actually used quite a bit. So you've you committed some sin, you didn't plan to, it's unintentional, you made a mistake, you did something wrong, you, you can bring an offering to say sorry to the Lord. And then there are other sins. There are unintentional sins and there are other sins. Oh sorry, I gave you one verse here on the screen that uh, chapter four, verse two. When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands, he must bring to the Lord a young bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. Then you have other sins. 
If anyone sins and is unfaithful to the Lord by deceiving a neighbor, so that's not unintentional, you're, you're deceived. They cheat their neighbor or if they swear falsely. When they sin in any of these ways and realize their guilt, they must return what they have stolen or taken by extortion or whatever it was they swore falsely about, in other words, whatever they lied about. They must make restitution in full, add 20%, and give it all to the owner on the day that they present their guilt offering. Okay, so here someone who has done uh, something wrong, uh, and so you present a guilt offering. Some of you may be thinking, oh, it's quite obvious then what's the difference between a sin offering and a guilt offering. The sin offering is for unintentional sins, and the guilt offering is for other sins, those that are not unintentional but deliberate. That and I'm quite happy to, for you to decide that it's simply like that. It's just that when you look at the chapter in detail, it's not, it's not that neat. Because even sin offerings are offered for sins that are unintentional. So there's some overlap. Okay, so anyway, I, I, don't, I don't know the exact answer. I don't think anyone does. They're, more, they're better guesses than others. But, so I put them together. They have to do with when we, something has gone wrong or we've done something wrong and it's our way of coming to say sorry to God and to the person. Okay? Sin and guilt offerings deal with sin and guilt. So let me try now and summarize uh, these lists of sacrifices that the Lord gave uh, to his people. Let's think about our own lives and our own relationships. Why do we offer gifts to people? What are our gift rituals, if you like? Sometimes we give gifts as a sign of our love and our commitment. The most obvious one and the most solemn one is the wedding, the wedding ceremony, right? Where we, I give you this ring as a, a token and pledge of my constant love and, and faithfulness. We, we give people things to signal our love and commitment. Uh, young lovers in, in courtship, it's very common for them to give, give each other gifts. Right? Uh, we give gifts when we want to show appreciation and honor. Uh, often I've spoken at places and they will give me a thank you gift as a way of thanking me so, to show appreciation. I'm sure you've received such as well. I, I suspect you've given such gifts as well. We also have gift rituals where we give in order to promote fellowship and peace. What I spoke earlier in our English idiom, we talk about peace offering. Let me give you, let me buy you lunch or <laughs> something like that as a peace offering, right? We're trying to build our friendship. We give gifts to say thank you, uh, to fulfill a promise. You know, you've done something for me. I, I want to give you something. I want to say thank you. Sometimes we just give gifts without any reason, without condition or reason. You don't normally do that with strangers, but even with strangers, sometimes you may feel you want to give to somebody. But we, we do these sort of gifts, particularly with those whom we love or our good friends. I just want to give because we're good friends. Uh, and I've been blessed with some friends like that, who sometimes for no good reason would just decide to buy me lunch. We give gifts sometimes to say we are sorry and to make peace. Right? So in our human analogies, I'm, you think about why we do give gifts. And if you've got a relationship where there's a lot of this giving that is going on, I would describe that as a fairly close and vibrant relationship. 
A close and vibrant relationship is one where you are giving each other gifts. And what I've taken you through in the book of Leviticus, in a sense, I think, takes us through all these kinds of gifts. The whole offerings signal total dedication and commitment and love. I give you this ring as a symbol of my commitment and love. And we, we renew that dedication regularly. Grain offerings to show appreciation and honor. Peace offerings to promote fellowship and peace or to say thank you or in fulfillment of a vow or promise. Uh, free will offerings. Sin and guilt offerings to say we are sorry, make peace. I don't know what I've done, but I, I, you seem to be very angry with me. I must have offended you in some way. I'm sorry, I want to be friends. Please, uh, can I buy you lunch or can please accept this as a token of my desire to renew our friendship. We, we do things like that with people whom we want a close and vibrant and living relationship with. So I would suggest to you that the book of Leviticus is God's, by giving us all these commands and sacrifices and different types of sacrifices, is God's invitation to us to have this type of relationship with Him. A close and vibrant relationship. Leviticus invites us to this type of relationship with God. This is part of what it means to be holy before God. Because Leviticus spends so much time on this, making sure that our relationship with God remains close and vibrant and alive. This must be, be part of what Leviticus understands by being holy. To be holy means to be in close, vibrant, living relationship with God. And so there are morning and evening sacrifices, the whole offerings. There are regular special sacrifices, grain offerings, appreciation and honor, where peace offerings to express thanks, sin and guilt offerings to say sorry. So this is what we see, I think, in chapters 1 to 7, in the whole sacrificial system that Leviticus draws out for us. God's invitation to a vibrant relationship with him, vibrant relationship with one another. Any questions or comments before we take a breather? I told you this would be the longest section uh, for, or, of the summary. So we'd be happy to know we've come to the end of the longest section. <laughs> Any questions? We sang one song earlier, I think, that expresses that sense of offering the Lord a total, our total selves. You know, there are many, there are other good worship choruses that do this. This is another one of them. You know, there is that, there is that part, day and night, night and day, let incense arise. So this is this sense of where the whole, all continuously sacrifices are being offered to the Lord. I think that draws on that imagery of the, the, the whole offerings always uh, rising up to the Lord, indicating our total uh, commitment to Him. So, any questions or shall we just sing this then we'll take a one minute break? Anyone want to ask anything? You missed out a blank, you, you, you need help filling it in. Yeah, the person next to you can probably help. Imagine the, the, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the mighty God who is worthy of all glory, honor and praise. He invites us to a vibrant living relationship with Him. One where we can commune with Him day and night. Uh, talk to him, to say sorry to him, to say thank you to him, to relate with him, to be in peace with him. This is God's invitation to us as human beings to relate with the living God. And he is worthy of all glory 
and honor. Let's just sing this once through and then uh, we can take a stretch break. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. Day and night, night and day, let incense arise. For you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, and to you are all things. You deserve the glory. Amen. Okay, let's take a short stretch break, and then I'll take you through the rest of the book quite uh, quickly. You need to stand up and stretch. Nowadays, I find if I sit down for too long, my back aches. So I have to stand up and stretch. And if others are going to the restroom, you have a question but you didn't ask it earlier, you want to ask now, I'm happy to try and respond. Okay, are we ready? So chapters 1 to 7 in the book of Leviticus deal with sacrifices and I've suggested that it speaks to us of God's desire uh, and instructions on how to maintain a vibrant relationship with Him. And I pray that, that, that we would uh, desire that for ourselves as well. Chapters 8 to 10, just three chapters, focus specifically on Aaron and his sons as priests and what they are supposed to do. So it, it, it deals with things uh, with, with that family. So as I said, I'll just briefly give you a general reflection. The book does focus on priests and the Levites. So maybe at, at least as we're trying to think about why God has left this book in, in the Bible, even for us, uh, it should remind us of the importance of the work of priests. Okay, so this is, here is a book that does focus on the work of Aaron and his sons. So the importance of priestly work in the eyes of God. Work, and what is priestly work? Priestly work is specially connected with the tabernacle or the temple. Okay, and that Leviticus, obviously, the, the first half of the book particularly deals a lot with that. So perhaps our reflection should be we, we should not neglect priestly work or religious service to the Lord. Uh, sure, we can relate to the Lord wherever we are, walking on our own in, in nature as we go through, walk through MacRitchie or whatever. But uh, the book of Leviticus, uh, we believe is God's word and God does seem to think that uh, the way worship is conducted in the temple and the tabernacle is important. And so... So we too perhaps should try not to neglect some form of religious service to the Lord. So a pastoral suggestion is that you should perhaps devote some time at least of your life to some church-related service. I'm not asking you to come here every night. I, I, think, I think we shouldn't. Your pastor should not want you here every night because we have our lives are more than just what goes on in, in church. But... Uh, but you, sh you should devote at least some part of your life towards, I think, church-related work. Okay? So don't get involved in too many committees, but get involved in at least one area of service. 
Right? Don't, I know, so the, the, you know, a problem that a lot of churches have, a few people help to serve, and, but because there's so few, they have to end up in so many different areas of service, so many different committees, and, and then, you know, they're here three, four nights a week. And, but if everybody did a bit, uh, everybody committed to one area of service, then, you know, it, it, I think that would be wonderful. It would be great. Anyway, I think uh, the book of Leviticus does speak to us of the importance of uh, priestly work, work re- that's connected with the tabernacle or the temple in our modern context that refers to the church. Any questions or comments? Yeah, I promise it was fast, that section. <laughs> All right, next. Principles, chapters 11 to 15 and chapters 17 to 27 are lots of different instructions and principles that deal uh, with life. What might we learn from this since it occupies such a large part of the book of Leviticus? I've already said that uh, next week, if the Lord tarries, I'm going to spend a bit more time in detail on chapter, I think I said chapter 11, right? Chapter 11, uh, and then I'm also going to look at chapter 16 in a bit more detail, and then the following week, 17 and 23. So now I'll just give you some broad comments about these principles. And again, we're asking the question, you know, and we'll put this all together, how, what, what does this tell us about holiness and holy living? Okay, first thing, a general pastoral reflection of the laws that we find in Leviticus. They cover almost every aspect of life. So the scope of holiness, of these holiness laws, if you like, cover everything almost in life. Religious relationship rituals, the sacrifices, we've looked at that. There are laws on diet, what to eat, what not to eat. Laws on clothing, what to wear, what not to wear. There are instructions on sexual relationships, whom you should not have sex with, whom... uh, There are instructions on childbirth and menstruation even, a very regular part of life. Uh, there's instructions on business practices, farming practices, how to plant your seeds, how many, in how many rows, etc. Instructions on personal hygiene, what to do with your waste and your big business. <laughs> and where to, it's very mundane sort of stuff. Social relations. But I suppose my, the point I'm saying, is they, they, these laws cover you know, the scope of our, so much of our life. So the scope of holiness is so broad. It covers every aspect of our life. And so I think that's what we learn from the shape of the book of Leviticus. It teaches us that holiness involves every part of our daily life. Everything. What, what we do. It's our whole life. Uh, we learn that already partly from the, the idea of the whole offering where we offer uh, symbolically the whole animal symbolic of our whole lives being offered to the Lord. And holiness involves every part of daily life. I finished that section too. (laughs) Now I'm jumping to the atonement. Now have a look at the way the book is. Chapters 11 to 15, a lot of principles covering different aspects of life. Chapter 17 to 27, more of the same. But in between that section, you've got chapter 16, which suddenly says on a specific day in the year, September, this shall be the day of atonement. And the whole chapter, it's quite a long chapter, goes in detail as to what you do on the day of atonement. You get two goats, 
And then you do this, do that, and one goat gets sent there, and one goat gets killed. So all instructions on what to do on this one day, this annual day of atonement in chapter 16. It comes right in the middle of these sets of principles, chapters 11 to 15, chapters 17 to 27, which deal with holy instructions for daily living. So I suggest to you that this speaks to us of the need for atonement or forgiveness. The placement of Leviticus 16, right in the middle of this, all these instructions on you shall be holy, for I the Lord I am holy, you shall not eat this, you shall do this. In the midst of all of that, you've got this very important annual ritual that emphasizes forgiveness, God's atonement. We confess our sins, we confess our guilt, and we receive the assurance of forgiveness and cleansing. So the placement of Leviticus 16, I think, suggests the vital need for us to receive atonement in the midst of our aim to be holy and perfect and obey all God's commands. So you've got law on the other hand, on the one hand, do this, do this, do this, do not do this, do not do this. But right in the midst of that, remember to receive forgiveness, remember to confess, remember to... So it's almost as if it's, it's quite clear, we are meant to aim to be perfectly holy, but it's assumed that nobody is going to be perfectly holy. No one's going to be able to, to do it all and get it all right. And so regularly, we need atonement and forgiveness. There's an annual day of atonement in Leviticus 16. And then actually, if we, I didn't point out this verse to you, but even when it talked about the whole offerings, the burnt offerings, which are offered to the Lord day and night every day, also has that element of atonement. Uh, I put up verse 4 for you of chapter 1. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. So the whole offering, which is a reminder to give our lives to the Lord every day, totally, day and night, morning, evening, also has that element of receiving God's atonement. So daily too, we need to confess and receive God's love and forgiveness. The word for atonement is used 49 times in this book. This book that speaks most of you shall be holy, you shall be holy, also speaks so much about the need for atonement. Uh, it just happens to work nicely in English. Someone has pointed out that the word atoned is to be at one. <laughs> at one. It doesn't work in Hebrew or anything like that. <laughs> but I just thought I'd point it out to you. But it does speak nicely, at least in English, of this idea. Atonement means our uh, relationship with God being restored again. We are at one with God once more. We, we receive, we confess and we receive forgiveness. Okay? So the need for regular atonement implies, I think, that holiness in the book of Leviticus isn't understood as perfect sinlessness. Because although Leviticus talks so much about holiness and that God makes us holy, it clearly emphasizes that we need atonement. We need forgiveness. Regularly, we need atonement. So holiness is not sinlessness in the book of Leviticus. Confession, contrition, bringing your sin and guilt offerings are part of what it means to be holy, a part of what it means to live a holy life, 
A holy life is one that regularly confesses sin and failure before the Lord and receives the joy and the assurance of God's forgiveness and atonement. Louis Smith, who has now passed on, in one of his books said, If I never feel any shame, I must have become either totally divine, <laughs> that's perfect, or totally corrupt, that I don't feel and realize that I've got sin and shame. My best intuitions tell me I'm neither. I know this is true for me. We are neither totally divine nor totally corrupt, but we all do sin. We all do fail, intentionally, unintentionally. But God has offered us a clear and wonderful way to regularly receive the assurance of atonement and forgiveness. And the book of Leviticus speaks quite clearly of this. In the midst of all the commands to be holy, holiness is understood in line with the need for atonement and confession. And so, the shape of holiness in the book of Leviticus. Holiness in Leviticus speaks of a vibrant relationship with God, speaks of the importance of religious service. Holiness covers all of our daily life and speaks of the importance of daily confession and the reception of atonement. Any questions or comments? Here's a slide that just repeats what I've said. Uh, what does it mean to be holy in the book of Leviticus? It would mean to maintain a vibrant relationship with God, to take up God's invitation to have this con con constant relationship with Him, vibrant relationship. And so we create a rhythm. You see that what the sacrifices every day do this for the whole offerings. When you, when you sin, do this, bring an offering. It creates a rhythm of spirituality in this whole sacrificial system. The, the chapters 8 to 10, which speak of the work of the priests, remind us that offering some form of temple service to the Lord is important in God's eyes. So we too should uh, devote some of our life to helping out, if you like, the work in the temple or the tabernacle or the church. Holiness covers all spheres of life. The scope of holiness is so broad, it covers everything. So we want to be obedient to God in all spheres of our life. Holiness means to be humble and contrite. Uh, we, we recognize that we need atonement. We need a forg forgiveness daily. And not only that daily confession, but then so important that there's one special day a year, a special day when we remember the need for our confession and atonement. I suppose in a sense, we, we too have normal, regular services throughout the year, but then we have special services that particularly highlight uh, our need of uh, for for forgiveness, etc. Uh, Communion Sunday functions like that, I think, for many people, a sort of rhythm of spirituality. Of course, we want to commune with the Lord every day, but you know, having a special sort of day once a month uh, also helps. Sometimes when everything is just every day, every day, after a while, we we forget the importance. We get too familiar, uh, and so having special days where the the truths of God's love and our need for forgiveness get particularly emphasized. I think that's an important rhythm to, to put into one's life. Okay. So what might a holy person look like? If we were to ask Mr. Leviticus to, to, to paint a portrait of a holy person, 
I'm just suggesting it might look, a person might look like this. He has a regular rhythm of spirituality. He begins and ends each day in a prayer of commitment. Lord, I offer my life to you completely to obey God fully. He's someone who often gives thanks to God daily, maybe before meals, maybe after every blessing that he has received. He is one who is offering thanks to the Lord. A holy person is someone who does his best to maintain peace with his fellow disciples. He desires good relationships with people. A holy person knows that he is sinful, commits sin unintentionally as well as at times intentionally. And so a holy person is one who confesses sin, both formally, in formal ways, and personally. A holy person joins in special days of confession and commitment. In a church, we don't call it the Day of Atonement, but Holy Communion particularly reminds ourselves that we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. Before every Holy Communion, we have the ritual of confession. Uh, uh, so it's all part of this formal way of reminding us that we need, we need this. Good Friday, too, is particularly uh, uh, strong in emphasizing Christ's death on the cross for our sake, for our sins, for the forgiveness of our sins. So a holy person has a regular rhythm of spirituality. He's involved or she is involved in some church-related service because recognizes that God seems to think the work of priests and the tabernacle and the temple is important. Here is a person, a holy person is someone who shows Christian integrity and love in all areas of life. Uh, home, work, leisure. The scope of holiness in Leviticus covers all of our lives. A holy person confesses the need for atonement. Holy person does not pretend to be sinless and perfectly holy. Uh, a, a holy person is humble. He, has, he or she has a humble holiness with, marked with compassion or holiness that does not condemn but somehow inspires others. I think of Jesus and I think of the Pharisees in the New Testament. The Pharisees certainly desired to be holy. Their whole ethos, they, they, they tried their best to be holy. They, that was a strong emphasis in their teaching, the need to be holy and obey all of God's commands. But somehow as they pursued holiness, these Pharisees, they did it in a way that made other people feel unworthy and unholy. Oh, these Pharisees, they're really so holy. I Hats off to them that they can be so committed to God, but the rest feel we cannot match that kind of holiness. Jesus was holy. I believe he was more holy than the perfect Pharisee. And yet Jesus' holiness, Jesus' way of living and being obedient to God in everything was very attractive. People were drawn to him. I think they did not feel condemned when they were near Jesus, but they felt loved. They, didn't, they knew they weren't perfect, but being with Jesus and the kind of holiness that he had inspired them rather than made them feel condemned and, and guilty. Let's pray for that kind of that humble holiness that is so beautiful. A holiness that is undergirded ultimately by a vibrant relationship with the living God who is full of compassion and truth. This is what holiness looks like in the book of Leviticus that invites us to be holy because the Lord is holy.
a pattern of regular, a regular rhythm of communion, a call for complete holiness, continual contrition. Uh, we understand the holy and forgiving character of God. So this is both law and grace, law, law with grace, holiness with compassion. Any questions? Clarifications? Before you see, I've got one more section for you tonight. So for those of you who thought I was going to end extra early, I'm so sorry. <laughs> this last section, I move out of Leviticus in a sense and I jump to the New Testament to ask the question, in what way does Jesus fulfill the book of Leviticus? For some of you, you may think that's a very odd question to ask. I mean, book of Leviticus is not a prophecy, so there's what sort of fulfillment are we looking for? But the reason I phrase it that way is because this is the sort of language that Jesus seems to use. So there are three verses in the New Testament where Jesus, where we are told about Jesus. Firstly, Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and that's a way of referring to the, the books of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, all the prophetic books, Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. In other words, it's a shorthand way of referring to what we call the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them, the two disciples who were walking on the road to Emmaus, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. So according to Luke 24, Jesus sort of gave those two disciples an overview of the whole Old Testament and tried to help them see how all the scriptures re re referred in some way or related in some way to himself, Jesus. John 5.39, Jesus is speaking with the Pharisees and he says, you Pharisees, you diligently study the scriptures and Pharisees did that, they memorized the scriptures. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that speak about me, Jesus claimed. So Jesus' understanding of the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, is that they somehow spoke about himself. All the scriptures spoke about him. John 5.46 If you believed Moses, you would believe me because Moses was writing about me. He was. It doesn't seem obvious to us because the name Jesus doesn't actually occur in the books of Moses. But obviously speaking in a more symbolic way, Jesus really meant, he said, if you read Moses and you understand what he says, you would believe me because actually Moses was in some way writing about me. So, it, so that is why I asked the question, book of Leviticus is attributed to Moses. In what way do we see Jesus in Leviticus? In what way might Leviticus speak about Jesus? And I'm going to try and answer that question. My understanding of how when I look at Leviticus, I begin to see Jesus. Okay, so that's in case you're wondering why, why this section. This is the section because we are new, we, as Christians, we believe in the New Testament and the New Testament does seem to say that you can read the Old Testament scriptures in a way that points to Jesus. So I'm trying to suggest to you how I think the book of Leviticus points to Jesus. Firstly, we could look at Leviticus chapter 16, which as I mentioned earlier, speaks about the Day of Atonement. 
we, we, we haven't read it. I don't have time to read it with you tonight. But there are a number of things that are said on that Day of Atonement in Leviticus that is picked up in the New Testament and applied to Jesus. So for instance, the high priest on the Day of Atonement would be the one effecting the ritual of atonement and there would be blood, blood from the goat, etc. And Hebrews chapter 9 speaks about the blood of Christ in, in that same imagery of bringing atonement. Not the blood of the goat, but now the blood of Christ. So Hebrews clearly refers to the imagery of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, also speaks about the scapegoat. All the sins of Israel are placed on this goat, and the goat is driven out of the camp. And hence we get the English idiom, the scapegoat. All the, our sins are placed on the, on the goat. In 1 Peter 2 verse 24, Peter calls Jesus our scapegoat. He has borne our sin. He has carried our sin outside the camp. Uh, the goat burnt. Uh, and Hebrews 13.12 picks up, sorry, Hebrews 13.12 uses the phrase outside the camp. 1 Peter 2.24 uses the phrase, he has carried our sins. Just like in Leviticus 16, the goat, the scapegoat carries the sins of Israel and, and, and is driven away. So you could say, if you look at the language of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, New Testament writers saw in the Day of Atonement Images or pictures of what Jesus has done for us. You could also look at this important command in Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Most of you probably think, oh, that's what Jesus said. You're absolutely right. Jesus said it at least twice. Recorded, actually recorded in all the Gospels. Matthew 19, the greatest commandment, you shall love your God, the Lord your God with all your heart and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is quoting from Leviticus. So again, you can see how uh, in, in, in some sense Jesus fulfills uh, a command in Leviticus, a central command. And Jesus says this is an important command. I put there Romans 3.9, Galatians 5.14, James 2.8. Uh, that that's not said by Jesus, but all those three verses in the New Testament also say the most important command is love your neighbor as yourself. They're all quoting from Leviticus. Okay, so, and Jesus did that as well. So you could say Leviticus is fulfilled in and by Jesus and that he picks up this important command in Leviticus and, and highlights it. The whole sacrificial system though, speaking more broadly rather than one particular chapter or one particular verse, I want to speak now more broadly about the book of Leviticus. I've spent a bit of time on the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus and suggest to you that it's God's invitation for constant communion, a vibrant relationship with God. That's what the sacrificial system pictures for us. And Jesus fulfills that, doesn't he? Jesus fulfills that kind of relationship with God the Father all day, constant communion. Jesus' total commitment to the Father's will, total obedience. So Jesus, by his life and his relationship with the Father, fulfills what Leviticus invites all of us to, a close, continual communion with God, commitment to the Lord day and night. Leviticus also gives us a lot of holy principles or laws combined with the need for atonement and grace. And we see that that marrying of both law and grace, need for holiness with the need for confession, 
We see that perfectly emphasized in Jesus. Jesus also emphasizes the law. In Matthew chapter 5, he says, Woe to anyone who tries to set aside even the smallest law. I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it, Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17 and 48. Uh, but yet Jesus speaks so much about forgiveness for when we break the law and when we sin. So he has that perfect combination of law and grace. Jesus' life of holiness, a compassionate holiness. Uh, and, and so I, I think that's what Leviticus speaks to us of as well. A compassionate holiness. And so Jesus fulfills Leviticus in these ways. Okay, so that's how I would understand uh, as I study Leviticus and I think about Jesus. These are the sort of things I see in Leviticus that I see even more clearly in our Lord Jesus. And that is all I have for you tonight and I'm happy to take any questions. Anybody? If not, then we might be able to end a few minutes early, right? Oh. Uh, did we want to close with a song and then uh, Pastor Anthony has assigned um, Reverend Lee to close in prayer, right? Okay, so no questions? Then why don't we stand and we sing this song again and, uh, and then uh, Reverend Yamkai will close us in prayer. Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I've been through. Use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you as a pleasing sacrifice. Lord, I offer you my life. All that I am, all that I have, I lay them down before you, O Lord. All my regrets, all my acclaim, the joy and the pain, I'm making them yours. Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I've been through. Use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you as a pleasing sacrifice. Lord, I offer you my life. Things in the past, things yet unseen, wishes and dreams that are yet to come true. All of my hopes, all of my plans, my heart and my hands, I lift them to you. Lord, I offer my life to you, everything I've been through. Use it for your glory. Lord, I offer my days to you, lifting my praise to you as a pleasing sacrifice. Lord, I offer you my life.
Let us pray. Lord, indeed, we thank you for these lovely lessons before us. We thank you, the Old Testament, New Testament can be one together for us. And so we thank you for this ministry of our brother, Gordon. Continue to uphold him in what he's doing and be a blessing to all of us. In Jesus' loving name we pray. Amen. All right, folks, let's put our hand together and thank our brother. I guess he never put us to sleep, right? Come for some more session. <laughs> thank you. See you next Thursday night. Two Thursday nights.